I think that the book of Acts is daunting for many of it, many of us. We approach this book with eagerness. You have a lot of expectation as you come to Acts, if you're doing it in your personal reading or if you're doing it in some kind of a group study. We come to this book and we, we think, okay, I'm going to get a picture in the book of Acts of the growth of the early church. And our hope is that as we, as we read through these pages that we will be able to capture some of the zeal, the spirit, the energy that they had, the strategy perhaps that the early church used as they sought to extend the good news of the kingdom of God, the boldness, the fervor that characterized them. I hope that too. I hope that we will have some of that as we look at this book together. But the reality is when you open up the book of Acts and you actually start to read it, we quickly bump into a whole variety of difficulties when we start this thing. In the first place, this is a really easy one for us to grasp and understand, Acts is big. It's one of the larger books in the New Testament, Luke, then Matthew, then Acts, in terms of the people that are involved, the places to which they go, the names that are part of this, the characters, it, it all has a lot of moving parts. It's not set in one place, one locale. You're traveling all throughout with characters that sometimes shift along the way. And so it's intimidating. That makes it kind of tough for us when you're covering such a wide expanse of people and places and events that are going on. The second reason that I think Acts is hard is that it is surprisingly uncomfortable to us. Like, imagine you're shopping, and perhaps you're doing online shopping or you're, you're at a store, and you see a particular piece of clothing that you think, this is great. I like that color. It's going to work on me. I generally like this style of clothes, this, this maker, and that's my size. This should fit really well for me. And we approach Acts kind of like that as well. Let me contrast it for a moment with Exodus. When we read Exodus, we kind of don't expect it to fit in exactly the same way that we think Acts should fit. Acts is pretty simple. The Spirit comes, the church expands, and that's great. And yet when you try it on, it doesn't quite work. It feels awkward. It doesn't fit the way you had expected it to fit. And the reason is all sorts of odd things are going on in the book of Acts. So you know more than get into or out of the first chapter when you find bowels gushing out, casting of lots for the making of decision, and then going further in the book, tongues of fire appearing, strange languages being spoken, miracles taking place, baptism of the spirit, magicians, snakes, and shipwrecks. And you kind of look at that and go, now, I thought here that I was going to be with my people. This is the New Testament. This is the church. If anything should fit me, this should fit me, and yet 
these are experiences that are somewhat foreign to me and they make our heads spin pretty quickly as we work through this book. So we have the question, pretty naturally I think, as you look at the book of Acts, what am I supposed to do with this? As I read it, what am I supposed to imitate? What am I supposed to adopt as I read the book of Acts? What should I read and simply appreciate in terms of understanding what God did and how He did it? And then at the exact same time, what should I avoid? Acts is written as history. It's not written for us, for example, like the book of Romans. The book of Romans presents to us a completed, if you will, theology. Let me explain this to you so that you both understand it correctly and so that you can then live properly within this world. Acts doesn't take that approach at all. It doesn't take the approach of Romans or of, or of the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Acts itself is written from the perspective of a people who are learning, growing, and maturing together in theology and praxis in how you live the faith. And we have got to appreciate that aspect of Acts. We have got to move along with them and not stop at points along the way that would be tempting to get us tripped up in terms of understanding what we are supposed to do with this. Let me, let me just give an example of this because we can give an example of it right from the section that I just read for us to, to see this, this kind of movement that takes place within the book of Acts itself. So the apostles, even after the teaching that Christ has given to them, which is both the teaching while he was on earth, the teaching during these resurrection appearances of the kingdom of God, nevertheless, ask this question that is found for us in verse 6. Lord, will, it you, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Everybody, all the commentators, quote John Calvin at this point regarding this question, and they say this, there are as many errors in that question as there are words in the question. They, they still don't understand these things. They still can't quite grasp what Jesus is instructing them to be and to do. And so they receive the correction that comes from Jesus right after that. That's, that's a, a, a failure of understanding that is going to be corrected in the apostles themselves as we move along. But not only do we see a failure of understanding, we also see a failure of praxis, although albeit in a fairly small form. So there they are. Jesus has ascended up into the cloud, and the apostles are all looking up. And one commentator writes this, and I, I really like the way he writes it. You know, maybe, maybe Peter, James, and John, reflecting back on the transfiguration, say something like, guys, don't worry about this. We've seen this before. We know what happens now. It's really glorious. It's really amazing. And then he comes back to us. In any case, they're still standing looking up into heaven. When the angels say, what are you doing? Why, why are you still looking up into heaven? Something else has happened, and you need to move on now. You need to not stay here. You need to go to the next thing. It's a failure, obviously, in understanding, but
but also in praxis, what they are doing. Paul will say, fix your eyes to the heavens above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, but he doesn't mean do this. So we have got to move along with them. We've got to struggle along with them, and we've got to figure out how do you rightly handle this, I'm going to call it difficult, this difficult piece of God's Word. Well, how do we do that? Let me, uh, let me provide, first of all, a suggestion that is based, I think, both on uh, the structure of Acts, but also on the fact that we just finished the book of Exodus. Think for a moment of both the structure and the genre of Acts in light of Exodus. Exodus 1 through 18 is a story of redemption. After a brief introduction, it begins with the birth of one whom God will use to deliver the people out of bondage. Through 18, it recounts that deliverance that he accomplishes. That is Luke, the gospel. From 19 to 40, in the book of Exodus, which of course we've just finished studying together, considering together, we have the questions of how then do you live as this constituted, in that case, community of God's people, this, this covenant community. How do you worship? How do you live together? How do you love one another? And at the center of it, God is saying, I'm going to provide a house for you in which my spirit will dwell. In the book of Acts, we have God reconstituting this people, and it's a much bigger people than then, and, and growing the house in which the Spirit of God dwells. It's just a different house. It's a bigger tent than the tabernacle was. So think of the structure that is there. There's this whole series in Acts, or in, in, in Exodus, of ascensions and descensions, going up on the mountain, receiving the Word of God, and the Spirit then coming down to dwell for the people. Like Exodus or Sinai, Acts provides us with a shape for the church without trying to suggest for one minute that all of the incidents that are herein described are supposed to be part of the everyday, ongoing, normative life of the church. Sinai and Exodus and the book of Acts are extraordinary. And the call that we have as the people of God looking at them is to rejoice in, to appreciate the extra, and live the ordinary. That's the challenge that we have as we read through this. Leaders, think now of Exodus, leaders with shining faces, manna being provided from heaven, thunderous voice of God up on a mountain, clouds, fire, they're great for a nation that was in transition, being 
gathered together as this covenant community, but they weren't going to be the norm. That wasn't going to be how Israel lived. We are not to read the book of Acts and seek after miraculous signs or apostolic authority. There are unique things that are taking place in the book of Acts that function for the foundation of the church but are not normative for the ongoing life of the people of God. When we search in this book, which of course we'll we'll do this over the months to come, and we look for particular things to apply from the gospel, I mean from the book of Acts, what we'll look for is consensus, corroboration, repetition, explanation of this. We'll look for confirmation. And in particular, we will look for those things within the book, but also within the apostolic tradition as it is summarized for us in the writings of the New Testament. They will help us. They will help us to know that which is normative and that which is not, that which is unique in this book. But even as I say that, I can say that real quickly, or not relatively quickly, I can say it fairly simply. But even having said it, that doesn't make it easy. It's still pretty complex to interpret this book faithfully and well. So I want to take this opportunity to say again today that which I have said before, and that is that I am awfully glad that I am not a solo pastor in an independent church trying to preach on the book of Acts. I am glad to be a Presbyterian pastor in a church full of Bereans. If you don't know what that means, you'll figure it out later in Acts. A man under authority. Now, I'll tell you, my sinful self, like your sinful self, bristles at authority. But I'm thankful for it in my best moments, and this is one of the times I'm thankful for it, because I'm under the authority of the Word of God, the whole counsel of God. I'm under the authority as I preach and teach this book of the ascended, reigning Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only king and head of the church, despite whatever happens in Philadelphia, Washington, and New York over the next week. I'm thankful to be under the authority of a confessional heritage. To say, this is what we believe. This is what we understand. And I'm thankful to be a man under the authority of fellow elders in the church who are called to correct me if I go off on some errant tangent in the book of Acts. With that, Luke writes, and he begins this book, addressing Theophilus. Imagine for a moment you're watching your favorite TV show or a movie, and the drama's building. You're getting towards the end, and you get to that point where the the screen stops and the words come up to be continued. And you groan, and you go, ah, I can't believe it. 
I wanted more. I wanted it now. I want to know how the story ends. I want it to be complete. That's the spirit of the question of the disciples. That's where they've been. They've been in the midst of the greatest story ever told. Is it now, Lord? Is, it, is this the time? To be continued. The story continues. And, and after we get past our initial groan, because the story doesn't end, or the, the, the movie doesn't end, or the show doesn't end, there's a part of us that really likes it. Because we get to anticipate, we get to think about what will be next in it, and we get to wait, we get to live this moment longer when things are to be continued. Luke, the gospel, ends with to be continued. Acts picks it up, and just like any story, it gives a little bit of a recap of what you got at the end of Luke chapter 24, and then it launches in again. Acts, and we'll get to this later, ends with to be continued. The book of Revelation ends with to be continued forever and ever. Oh, Theophilus. Here's a Greek lesson for the day. The, uh, the word for O in front of Theophilus in Greek is O. You can just remember that one. An interjection, an emotive exaltation. And I think here at this moment, as, as Luke writes to his friend, uh, 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 an interjection packed with, with love, with wonder, with joy. Oh, Theophilus, I've got so much more to tell you. You thought you were done. We're not done. Sit down. You've got to listen to the rest of the story. You've got questions because you watch the first part of a show. You've got all sorts of questions that are still with you. Where's Jesus? What happened to him? When is he coming back? Why is there so much? And, and remember, of course, Theophilus and Luke are now looking back on these things having happened, having taken place. Why has there been so much persecution, so much scattering of everybody? Why has there been martyrdom? In the church, wasn't this supposed to be a glorious kingdom coming from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? He's risen from the dead. He's ascended up. Why is it so hard right now? How is this going to end? When is this going to end? Is anyone in control of what's taking place here? Because it sure doesn't seem like anybody is in control. This doesn't look like a good plan of expansion. It looks rather haphazard. And in fact... If I'm Theophilus and looking at the church, I'm thinking, the reality is we look, instead of glorious, pathetic, weak, marginal, insignificant, uninfluential. What about all these promises? Great questions. Oh, Theophilus, now listen to this story. As Luke begins his response, I, I, I want to characterize it this way. I want to characterize the way that Luke frames this, which I think is the way the Spirit of God and God himself has structured things. I want to describe his response as interval training. 
You know what interval training is? If you ever go to a gym, you know what interval training is. If you turn on one of the cardio machines, you can do it on your own. You, know, you can set it to the speed, whether it's a, a, a stationary bike or an elliptical or a treadmill. You can set it to a particular speed and just go right at that pace. You can set it to random, or you can set it to interval training. The idea of interval training is that you build up to certain peaks, and then you go down, and then you're going to build up to another peak, and you're going to create these intervals by which your heart and your body are strengthened. And then likewise, you can switch between pieces of equipment. And the idea, at least, is that interval training provides us with greater strength, greater cardio strength, greater physical strength than some other program. Luke completely rejects the random setting. That's not surprising to us. In the Gospel of Luke, he was very careful to point out to his friend that though things looked like they were spinning out of control all the time, that everything had to take place. It must take place in this way. We saw it from the very beginning of Luke. I must be in my father's house. To Jesus, after his resurrection, instructing them, saying, did you not understand the scriptures that these things must take place? We will see that throughout the Gospel of Luke as well, and it's emphasized in our passage as Jesus responds to the question. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. God's fixed them. You don't know them, but what you can be assured of is that they're exactly fixed by God according to his authority. There's no random setting. These things aren't happening accidentally or incidentally. Luke is going to continually draw us back to the Old Testament to say, look at the pattern of that which is taking place. Is the witness language surprising here? The witness language isn't surprising at all. It's language that comes right out of the Isaiah 43 passage that we read. Is the idea of Jesus ascending and pouring things out surprising? No, there's absolutely nothing new about it. It's exactly what is written in Psalm 68, which was your call to worship. God pours out gifts from his sanctuary to the people, strength and power. It's the exact same thing. There's nothing new about what is taking place there. It is what God does. Is it surprising that God would pour out a spirit? No, it's not surprising that God would pour out a spirit. It's exactly what he promised to do in Ezekiel. There's nothing random about what is taking place here. It is in accordance with the word of God. Luke says, don't think random. Instead, think intervals in what God has done. And just to work, and I'm only going to do this really briefly, honestly. So Luke sets up the various intervals here as he's looking to Theophilus. He takes the first one in one verse. The gospel of Luke in one verse, all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's interval number one. Now, if we were back in Luke, we could divide that up and look at various intervals within that interval. And yet, nevertheless, he says, this is all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's what I taught you in book one. Of the words there, let me highlight just one of them. Began. This is what Jesus began to do and teach. And the implication of began is that the second part of the book, though it is titled in your Bible, the Acts of the Apostles, is in effect 
what the risen and ascended and enthroned Lord Jesus continues to do. That's what he began to do. This is what he continues to do. Theophilus, don't think for a moment that Jesus has left earth so that he can sit back and relax a little bit, and he has now somehow become disinterested, uninvolved in the life of the church. No. That which you see happening is happening because the king is reigning, because the king is doing that which he has promised to do. Interval two is after the resurrection up to the ascension. What was Jesus doing after the resurrection before his ascension? Well, he was teaching the apostles about the kingdom of God, and he was preparing them for the coming of the Holy Spirit, right? We read both of those. But, Theophilus, he was also doing something much more emphasized here in these few verses in three and four. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs. He spent 40 days appearing to them. Verse 4, and while staying with them, maybe a footnote in your Bible that says that that word staying can also be translated as eating. And this is what we see in the Gospels that the, the risen Lord Jesus was doing, eating, staying with them. Theophilus. What you need to know is that this faith, that which we believe, is historical, that it actually took place, that Jesus was demonstrating that he was alive to the people. I'm not telling you tales. I'm not giving a bunch of wishful thinking, and I'm not engaging in hagiography. Luke is recording verifiable history, and in particular, listen to this carefully, in particular, the apostles are unique, authoritative witnesses and representatives of these facts. That is what verse 8 is about. You and I use verse 8 very broadly bearing witness, being missionaries. In the book of Acts, witness is almost exclusively a technical term that applies to the 11 and then the 12, as we'll get to next week. They are authoritative witnesses, and they are unique in that role. No one else can be them. They're the ones whom God appointed, to whom Christ appeared, that you can count on say, these are the things that took place, these are the things that we saw. And the last thing that these witnesses see and to which they testify is the ascension of Jesus Christ. The ascension of Jesus Christ should not have been a surprise. Moses goes up. And when Moses goes up, listen to this, Joshua is close at hand, and the elders are a little bit further back. Elijah was taken up. And when Elijah is taken up, a double portion of his spirit is poured out on Elisha. And the prophets are a little bit further back. 
This pattern that we see here of the ascension of Jesus Christ and the pouring out of the Spirit is a pattern that we have seen before, and it points to the unique authority of the ones who come after the first, i.e. Joshua, who receives the Spirit of Wisdom after Moses dies, and Elisha, and they do deeds like unto the first. So the disciples, so the apostles are uniquely positioned both to witness and to have authority to do exactly these things. That brings us to another interval, the days up until Pentecost. What are they supposed to be doing till then? We'll read more about that next week. And then another interval, while the church is authoritatively established by the apostles through their preaching, through the suffering, as we await the return of the king. And that's what the angels promise. This is the, that's it, when, when he will return in the same way that you saw him depart from you. Oh, Theophilus, oh, brothers and sisters, you and I, by God's grace, there's nothing written about us in the book of Acts. There's no, our names aren't in there. And yet you and I are part of this story. We are part of the to be continued. We occupy together a small interval in the great intervals of what God is doing. I was tempted to call this sermon today, uh, here I am stuck in the middle with you. Yeah, some, some of you my age can remember that old, weird song. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I thought that would be a little irreverent. But here we are. Here we are. Strategically placed in the middle with each other. Our place our time. How do we serve? My prayer is that through this study of Acts together, that that's what we'll look at. We'll, we'll figure out together, how do you live? How do you speak? How do you believe? How do you live well in the meantime, in the interval, while the risen, ascended, enthroned Lord Jesus extends his reign through the building up of his church by the power of his word through the efficacy of the Holy Spirit to the ends of the earth. Period. Amen. I wrote that last word in the sermon and my phone chirped. And I looked at the email right at that point. And the email was from Sasha, who ministers in Central Asia and with whom I've ministered in some of the most remotest end-of-the-earth places that at least I can possibly imagine. And he was describing recent trips there and was showing pictures of another guy that he took with him who was a guy I had the opportunity to train and teach and mentor over the years to the ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, you're there. You're there. Jerusalem all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. That's where we are, stuck in the middle, strategically placed in the middle with each other 
while God, Jesus Christ, reigns through us to build his church. May he do so. Let's pray.